listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast with me, Jade Elliott, where we talk all things pregnancy, children, and parenting. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV2 news podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health. You're listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast with myself, Jade Elliott. Today we're joined by Dr. Helen Feltovic with Intermountain Healthcare. And we're talking about preventing preterm birth. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we, of course, know predicting when the baby's going to be born, whether that baby's going to arrive early or on time or late. It's really a mystery when it all comes down to it. Um, but, of course, there are ways to try to predict it. Um, but, you know, the timing of that prediction can still be thrown off by a number of different things. You're going to kind of t- walk us through um, some of the mystery of the possible causes in regards to preterm birth. Uh, you are a maternal fetal medicine OBGYN. You're the associate professor at Intermountain Healthcare, and you manage high-risk pregnancies. So you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this topic of preterm birth and, and really what that means. So kind of Just break that down for us to start with. What is the definition of preterm birth? Because it doesn't just mean that your baby isn't born, quote unquote, on time. Right. That's an important question. And there's a lot of confusion about it, actually. And um, that's exactly right. For a high-risk obstetrician, maternal fetal medicine doctor like me and all of my partners and colleagues, preterm birth is really our bread and butter. It's pretty common. It happens in about 10% of pregnancies overall. So the due date is 40 weeks. So when you're given a due date um, at the beginning of your pregnancy, that date reflects 40 weeks. 37 weeks, so 37 weeks previous to that is considered term. Lots of people think that they've had a preterm baby if their baby comes two weeks before the due date or or one week before the due date, and that's not right. Anything three weeks before the due date and beyond is preterm. And then we further break that, I mean, I'm sorry, anything that's um, under 37 weeks is preterm. And then we break that down further. So 34 weeks to almost 37 weeks is considered late preterm. And the reason that we have different categories is because there are different sorts of complications and outcomes associated with those various categories. Um, and then less than 28 weeks is in, is considered early preterm. Um, in some places, that's really less than 26. So less than 26 to 28 weeks is considered very early preterm. 34 to 37 weeks is 36 plus six weeks is considered late preterm. And then there are the deliveries between like 28 and 34 weeks. And does it just happen on its own or are there reasons why you know, maybe a doctor like yourself would recommend a preterm delivery prior to that 37 week point? Yeah, that's a really important question. So we divide preterm births um, into spontaneous preterm births, which means, as you say, the, the baby comes on its own. So labor starts or membranes break or what, whatever starts to initiate that process. That's called spontaneous preterm birth. There's also what we call medically indicated preterm birth. Sometimes maternal or fetal complications of pregnancy, for instance, 
fetal growth restriction is one of them, or maternal hypertension, maternal high blood pressure is another one of those. Um, sometimes those kinds of problems lead doctors to say, you know, you probably should have the baby a little bit early to keep everybody safe. Um, but two thirds of preterm births, so two thirds of all the deliveries that occur at less than 37 weeks, zero days gestation, are spontaneous. And in fact, most of those are unexplained. We don't know why the, why the baby delivered early. Because it can be difficult to even try to predict a preterm birth and the factors that may lead into that. Exactly. It is really difficult to predict a preterm birth. And in fact, it's difficult to predict delivery at all, mm -hmm. even when somebody is in active labor and we're measuring cervical dilation regularly. We are notoriously horrible at predicting when a baby will deliver. It's one of the still considered one of the great obstetrical mysteries, actually. And it really is. I mean, there's almost just no way to even have that idea. Yeah. And, you know, that's a whole different podcast. But um, the reasons for it in a nutshell are that we just don't have good ways of objectively understanding what's going on. So in order for a uh, fetus to deliver, we have to have three things happen. One of them is that the cervix has to shorten and open. Another one is that the water has to break, the membranes have to break. And the third one is that the uterus has to contract. And it's kind of astonishing actually, because all of those things have to happen just at exactly the right time, you know, between 37 and 40 weeks in normal pregnancy. But the job of those pregnancy tissues for the whole rest of the pregnancy from conception up to 37 weeks is precisely the opposite. The uterus needs to stay quiet, the membranes need to stay intact, and the cervix needs to stay relatively long and closed. And the problem is that we don't have good objective tools to measure changes in those tissues that are remodeling throughout pregnancy. They need to remodel throughout pregnancy, that's normal. Um, but we don't have a way to objectively measure those things, changes in those tissues and how they interact and where the signaling is coming from. Is it the placenta that's telling the tissues to change? Is it the fetus? Is it the maternal compartment? It's obviously a combination of all those things, but we don't have a real good understanding of that yet. When we do have that, and um, we are starting to understand a lot more than we used to, but when we do have that finally, I think we'll be able to predict labor, term or preterm, um, at least a lot better than we can now. It's very complex. Very complex. And and I mean, the, the way that the body works through all of it is just as complex and astonishing in its own right. You know, and I, I assume that preventing preterm birth is the goal, but to prevent also, I'm sure you face a number of challenges, even try to prevent something that you don't even know if it's going to happen or not, or when it's going to happen or not. That is exactly it, Jade. That is exactly the issue, is that if you don't understand, you know, A, whether something's going to happen or not, B, there's no way to try to understand 
what's making that happen or the timing of those happenings and all of that impairs our ability to try to figure out preventive um, preventive therapies for it. We do have a few, you know, there certainly are things that we look for and um, some therapies that we have that are directed at those kinds of risk factors, but we aren't great at preventing it. And once labor has started, you know, once a woman has broken her membranes and is actively contracting and that sort of thing, um, we often can't stop it. We don't have therapies for that. But that's one reason that it's really, really important to let your provider know if you're having any of the symptoms of preterm birth because we are good at getting a patient to where they need to be to deliver in the safest place possible, which is to say at a facility that has a neonatal intensive care unit. And we do have some interventions like, for instance, steroids to help a fetus's lungs mature a little bit more quickly that we can offer to improve outcomes, even though we can't stop the preterm delivery. And what about risk factors? Because I know that there are a number of risk factors that that could lead to mm-hmm. preterm births. Walk us through some of that. So the two primary risk factors that we have that are um, pretty faithful in predicting are a previous history of a preterm birth and a short cervix in the current pregnancy as measured by transvaginal ultrasound. So those are the very strongest risk factors that we have and honestly they're not great they they both perform about as well as flipping a coin that said they're the best we have and we do have therapies that are directed at both of them namely progesterone and cerclage which we can talk about more in a minute if you'd like um but other other risk factors, you know, other associations with preterm birth include things like multiple gestation. Those pregnancies are at increased certain maternal medical complications put women at increased risk for preterm birth, either spontaneous or medically indicated. For instance, obesity is a medical complication that puts women at risk for both spontaneous and medically indicated preterm birth. Other risk factors have to do with ancestry. So for instance, being of black race or ethnicity increases risk of preterm birth and certain behavioral issues such as smoking, alcohol, substance use um, puts people at increased risk of preterm birth. A a large category that we're um, just starting to understand that increases people's risk is social determinants of health. So sort of the underpinnings of health inequities. Um, We are starting to understand really put people at increased risk for preterm birth. And these include environmental factors like where do you live and what is your income, things like that. Other factors are internal. For instance, someone's genetics. So the the complement of um, genetic material that a person is born with can impact their risk of preterm birth. Very, very complex. And stress. I mean, I know just from being 
not pregnant right now, how stress can play a factor on on a body, on my body. Uh, and then you add the extra stress of being pregnant and growing a human, and then all of the other stressors that surround us, you know, whether it be pre-pandemic, during pandemic, post-pandemic, um, stress has to, I would imagine, of course I'm no doctor, but I would imagine that that would play an impact when it comes to preterm birth. I'm really glad you asked about that, Jade, because yeah, absolutely it does. So anecdotally, forever, providers have known that stress plays a role in pregnancy outcome, including preterm birth. And the thing is that it's a really, really difficult parameter to measure, right? So there's psychological stress, which is kind of what you were um, getting at when you were talking about the pandemic and some of the stressors, the social isolation and the anxiety, those are stressors. There's also physiologic stress. So, um, you know, uh, this, this is stress from, well, pregnancy itself is physiologically stressful. And then when you add in things like nutritional status or um, the kind of job you have, you know, how physically stressful is that? It really compounds the issue. The problem with stress is that it's really difficult to measure. So in pregnant women, specifically in studies looking at preterm birth, people have tried to measure, for instance, levels of cortisol in pregnant women's hair and um, levels of stress hormones in blood or saliva. And these um, tend to be loosely associated with preterm birth, but again, it's just so complex that it's hard to get a fix on that. And then when you talk about psychological stressors, of course, we have some very good survey instruments that are designed to measure people's stress. This, for instance, is why we can say that we know as a nation that stress is generally up because we have survey instruments, but those are you know, fairly subjective and stress is just really difficult to measure. So though we know that in our hearts and, and um, through our narratives, because we watch it, we know that stress impacts pregnancy outcomes such as preterm birth. It's a really, really difficult thing to measure. This pandemic actually is highlighting some of those areas. And if there is a silver lining to this pandemic, um, one of them is certainly that it's giving us things to think about and um, specific parameters to evaluate as stressors for preterm birth. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, understanding a patient's genetics, their environmental factors, how stress can play a part in, you know, from both of those things. Um, and then also as, as that is kind of becoming um, something that you're starting to learn more about in regards to be able to understand, not necessarily predict, but understand preterm birth better. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I'm really glad to hear you focus on understanding because really until we understand, we don't even understand normal parturition, which means pregnancy and childbirth. We don't even understand that. Mm -hmm. And in order to understand abnormal parturition, in other words, preterm birth, we have to have a really good understanding of 
just pregnancy and delivery itself. One thing, one thing that's um, that's becoming obvious to us in obstetrics, as you just intimated, is that we don't understand it very well at all. We don't understand parturition. So right now we're kind of looking to our oncology colleagues who have had a lot of success in being able to understand cancer that has translated into in many cases, the previously unthinkable happening, which is that many cancers are now curable. And how they did that was um, back prior to about the 1950s, cancer was cancer. And it people knew that it occurred in different tissues and it kind of behaved different ways, but the general approach to treating it was to think this is cancer and we must attack it with surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. Mm -hmm. But as more biomarkers were developed, um, the understanding of cancer really changed dramatically. A biomarker is something that can be measured objectively, that can give you information about the physiologic process that's happening, and in that way, tell you if something's abnormal, tell you if um, a particular disease is responding to a particular treatment, things like this. So, and remember I was saying a minute ago, one of the problems that we have with our inability to predict timing of delivery right now is that we don't have good objective biomarkers. We lack them. We have just our fingers to check the cervix and of course, that's very objective from, or very subjective from person to person. So what our oncology colleagues learned was that they could use imaging biomarkers. So through um, advances in technology, CT scanning, PET scanning, MRI, ultrasound, contrast enhanced ultrasound, they could figure out where a tumor is and how metabolically active it's being, for instance. And they figured out how to link that with fluid biomarkers. And these are things that you look for in bodily fluids. So blood, urine, CNS fluid, amniotic fluid, saliva, all of these different things. So they figured out how to use these together to try to determine what kind of cancer is in a particular tissue in a particular person at a particular moment in time and tie that into things like their that person's fundamental genetics and through those kinds of um, studies and developments our cancer colleagues have gotten really good at being specific about what kind of cancer is happening at a particular moment in a particular person and targeting therapies exactly to that. So now you have literally thousands of imaging biomarkers for different types of cancers. You have thousands of fluid biomarkers and you also have thousands of different kinds of therapies. With preterm birth, we have two. So we have two biomarkers and we have two therapies. So we're kind of back pre-1950s where the oncologists were where you know they saw cancer as cancer instead of all of these different kinds of disorders we're still in the phase where we kind of see preterm birth as preterm birth even though really this outcome of preterm birth is 
all kinds of different disorders and all kinds of different pathways that lead to that. So right now what we do is we look at a person's history. Remember I said that um, history of previous preterm birth was one of the strongest risk factors for recurrence. Mm -hmm. And we look at the length of a particular patient cervix in a particular pregnancy. And we can address those two things with two different kinds of therapies. One is progesterone, and this comes in different formulations and administrations for different indications, but basically it's all progesterone. And it's really been around since the 1950s and 1960s. We've been regurgitating it in different ways. And the other one is cerclage. So this is a purse string suture around the cervix that mechanically fortifies it. So both of those are used in different sorts of combinations based on a particular person's situation in terms of her cervical length and her history. But the point is that we really only have these two things. So we, we, we also really only have two biomarkers. So remember I just said the oncologists have thousands of different treatments. We have basically two approaches. Um, and I also said the oncologists have thousands of different imaging biomarkers and fluid biomarkers. Well, in obstetrics, we have two. We have cervical length, which I'm which I mentioned a minute ago, and it does qualify as a biomarker. It's measured in a standard fashion with a transvaginal ultrasound. It has a specific measurement. We all do it in the same way. So it's much better than just using our fingers. But as I said, it's not anywhere close to 100% per, um, predictive. 50% of women who have a short cervix in the middle of pregnancy go on to deliver at term. And if you look backwards, 50% of women at least who deliver at term, if you look backwards to what their cervical length was in the middle of pregnancy, it was normal. So I said that wrong. 50% of women who develop who deliver preterm, if you look back to what their cervical length was in the middle of pregnancy, you'll find that it was normal. So it's not a great biomarker, but um, but it's the best we have, and we do have progesterone therapy or cerclage therapy for a short cervix that reduce the risk by about 30 to 40 percent. So it's important to use, but it's not great. It's one thing, unlike the hundreds that the oncologists have. And we have, um, there have been hundreds of fluid biomarkers that have been looked at at well in saliva, in vaginal secretions, in blood. And out of those hundreds, really only one has shown effectiveness that's useful clinically. And this one is called fetofibronectin. So fetofibronectin is a protein that is found in the vagina when there's been disruption between the amniotic sac and the uterus. And it's really good as a negative predictive marker. So if someone has a negative um, fetofibronectin, and we use this between about 23 weeks and 32 weeks or so, if someone has a negative fetofibronectin, the chance of delivering within the next 14 days is pretty low. It's less than 5%. But if they have a positive fetofibronectin, it's not so great because the chance is still two out of three that delivery will not occur in the next two weeks and only one out of three that it will occur. But that's still better than anything else we have. 
Which is amazing. I mean, listening to all of the research and, and the path forward that you guys are taking on all of this is just, it's fascinating. You know, there's so much that has been learned already, but so much more, like you're saying, that still needs to be learned to, uh, you know, like I said, not, not even prevent or predict preterm birth, but to just understand it. That's exactly right, Jade. And um, I think I think this is a really exciting time, actually, for obstetrics. I think we're going to learn more in about the next 10 years. And in fact, fueled by this pandemic, because it's highlighting a lot of things about preterm birth that we haven't clearly understood before. I think we're going to know more about um, how to predict timing of delivery and just pregnancy itself in the next 10 years than we have in the previous, you know, 2000 years combined since the time of Hippocrates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's an exciting time. It is exciting. And going forward, though, we still know that that preterm birth and preterm labor is a possible factor uh, when it comes to going through a pregnancy. And with that being mm-hmm. said, for you know any of our listeners who may be pregnant or maybe trying to get pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, um, when it comes to that preterm labor and that preterm birth, what are some of the things that they should be, you know, looking at in regards to symptoms and also things that they should be focused on in regards to themselves? Not saying that they can, but to try to prevent it. So. Um... That's that's a critical question, and I'm so glad, Jade, that you're highlighting the true fact that everyone is at risk for preterm birth just by virtue of the fact of being pregnant. So every pregnant woman is at risk for preterm birth, no matter what her history is or if this is even her first pregnancy. So some of the things that we tell patients to look for um, are especially in, you know, the mid trimester. So around 20 weeks or so, um, not just contractions. Everybody knows about contractions and they often feel like really strong menstrual cramps, right? And we tell patients if you if you feel contractions and they're getting stronger, you know, let your provider know absolutely if that is accompanied by um by loss of fluid so leaking or any bleeding or anything like that your provider would want to know about it right away but there are also some sort of um less specific signs less obvious signs for instance backache can be a sign of preterm labor especially early preterm labor um pressure. So vaginal pressure that's new can be a sign. Um, Diarrhea can be a sign or other kinds of bowel upset. So really what we tell our patients is here are the risk factors for preterm birth. You are at, you know, higher or lower risk depending on your history, but every pregnant woman much watch for the signs. And we kind of give them that list of um, factors that I just went over with you. But the truth is that if, if a pregnant woman feels something different, like feels a different kind of pressure, or even just kind of feels like something just isn't right, it is always valuable to have that checked out. 
most of the time, everything's fine because pregnancy is associated with so many different feelings and every pregnant woman contracts. It's part of being pregnant. Um, every pregnant woman has increased discharge as pregnancy progresses because it's just part of the normal hormonal and endocrine signaling that accompanies pregnancy. But it's always important to let your provider know if you're experiencing these things because sometimes it's abnormal. So the message really is, if you feel something different, reach out. Let your, let your provider know and we work with you to decide whether it's something that you should come in and have evaluated right away, whether it's something that we really aren't worried about, or whether it's something we should watch a little bit. Yeah, always important to listen to our bodies, absolutely. You are such a wealth of knowledge, and it's just absolutely amazing to hear all of the things that are being done uh, as we continue to progress and learn more and and try to understand more about, um, you know, preterm birth, understanding it, preventing it, predicting it, all the things. I so appreciate your time and all of the information that you've, you've given us. Um, I know that intermountainhealthcare.org, also another great resource for people. Are there other resources that you recommend, doctor? You know, I, I look toward, um, two main sources. I point patients toward two main sources. One is the March of Dimes. They have a um, very strong preterm birth prevention and education program, and they have a lot of great materials um, online. It's just marchofdimes.org. Um, and another one is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have a lot of information for pregnant women and for women who are high risk. So let's say you've already had a preterm birth or let's say you know that um, you have a short cervix or remember we were talking about genetics earlier. Genetics is important. If your mom or your sisters have had preterm births, that's a risk factor for you. So um, any of these kinds of additional risks, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, SMFM, also has a lot of information for patients. So those are three great sites. Um, and we have a wealth of knowledge right here at Intermountain. In fact, I'm, I'm so proud of being a provider for Intermountain because they're um, they're they're really face forward with interventions and with research for trying to figure out the answer to preterm birth. And so there are a lot of people within our own institution um, that are accessible. And, so and lots you, and lots of different places to yeah, go. Yeah, and you're one of those. So thank you so much for being with us. We so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for caring about preterm birth and and to all the pregnant women out there, reach out if you have questions. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dr. Helen Feltovic with Intermountain Healthcare, thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of the Baby Your Baby podcast, talking about preventing preterm birth. Thanks for joining me, Jade Elliott, and our guest for this week's Baby Your Baby podcast. If you have a topic that you'd like our Baby Your Baby experts to discuss, leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV2 news podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health.